Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Crafted on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Okay, allow me to start things off here with a very strong statement. In my opinion, Bar Hill Gin is one of the very best products being made in America today. And I mean that across all categories and all types of products, not just the gin vertical. So if you are a fan of gin, you absolutely have to try Bar Hill Gin and you really probably ought to try it in combination with their raw, unfiltered honey. And furthermore, for those of you who don't often go for gin, well, you still ought to try this one. As you all know, I have been a whiskey person for a very long time. I tried Bar Hill Gin and actually went to Montpellier, Vermont by myself, unannounced, on the recommendation of a close friend of mine, and I fell in love with the place and the product. So there's that. And furthermore, when you also consider the mission of Bar Hill, you'll understand why Bar Hill has such a wildly fanatical following. I absolutely love this company. I love what it stands for. And it was a joy to be back in Montpelier, Vermont, to spend the day at Bar Hill with Bar Hill's president and distiller, Ryan Christensen, to talk about bees and pollinators, the process of producing exceptional gin, what makes their Bar Hill vodka so unique, we talk about the impact of their Bees Knees Week initiative, their foray into the world of rye whiskey, and more. This episode of Crafted is presented by our Blister Craft Collective, which is our growing collection of exceptional craft companies that also support the independent work we do here at Blister. So we hope you'll check them out, and if you become a fan, support them too. We'll include a link to our Blister Craft Collective in the show notes of this episode. So yeah, check it out, and you can also learn more about Bar Hill at caledoniaspirits.com or find them on Instagram at barhillgin. And now, please enjoy my conversation with Bar Hill's Ryan Christensen. Here we go. All right. Well, I am here with Ryan. Ryan, why don't you tell the people exactly where we are right now? Yeah. So, Jonathan, we are here uh, in Montpelier, Vermont. Uh, This is the Bar Hill Distillery, and we are located at 116 Gin Lane. Gin Lane. um, Quite fitting. What's the story? Yeah. So, uh, well, in... Gin Lane is is a historical story that goes, you know, long way back from, you know, before there was a Bar Hill distillery here. Um, it's actually not even a Montpelier story. Um, this is, um, you know, British Parliament, you know, in the gin craze, you know, this famous, you know, time period, 18th century London, uh, you know, the government basically said, gin is evil. Stop drinking gin, stop making gin. And it was this um, similar to, you know, Prohibition in America, where um, you know the government basically said you need to stop 
um, the production of gin and gin is making people crazy. And there were all these, uh, you know, stories out there. Um, and rightfully so, because of those rules, people actually did start to make really low quality gin. So gin might have actually been making some people go crazy. Um, but anyway, uh, they actually contracted William Hogarth to create two pieces of art. One was Gin Lane and one was um, Beer Street. And Beer Street is a famous piece of art where uh, beer is everything great and business is booming. And Gin Lane uh, was a piece of art that sort of showed the mayhem in the streets. And um, so we, we thought that was a really cool story. And we said, um, we worked with the town of Montpelier on, on uh, building this facility. And it turned out that uh, we actually needed a road to come in to this land to cross the railroad tracks. And the town said, uh, we're happy to make that a, a public road. So what, what do you want to name it? And of course, we, uh, you know, without any hesitation said, I think it should be called Gin Lane. Very fitting. And literally while you were talking, I was taking pictures of the art behind us showing Beer Street and Gin Lane. Those are very impressive pieces. Um, I, those are just prints, large prints, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. We had those recreated so we could uh, hang them here on the wall. We're, we're in what we call the tonic room, which is a, a you know, it's, it's, it's a small conference room where, where our team can meet. But uh, we thought keeping this story as part of our day-to-day work life was, uh, was an important thing to do. So that's a bit about exactly where we are right now. But why don't we zoom out just a little bit and have you answer the question, what is Bar Hill? So uh, we were founded by a beekeeper named Todd Hardy. Uh, Todd is um, he's a lifelong beekeeper, just committed his life to um, agriculture and supporting the bees and educating the world on the importance of raw honey. Um, I was a um, brewer. Um, I owned a small home brewing store in Plainfield, Vermont, about 30 minutes south of Hardwick. And uh, when I met Todd, I just fell in love with his connection to the bees. He referred to bees as the angels of agriculture. And I just saw this opportunity to work with somebody that was so deeply rooted in agriculture and so passionate about these little fuzzy little creatures that we often just forget are so vital to food systems and, you know, every bit of our life depends on them. And, um, and they also make something really delicious in raw honey. So Todd's passion for bees was just really contagious to me. And um, so Todd and I um, together built the distillery, um, Caledonia Spirits Distillery, and, and we're best known for Bar Hill, the, the, um, a brand of gin and vodka um, focused on supporting agriculture and more importantly, starting conversations that put people's attention all the way back to the importance of the hive pollinators and how that ultimately supports um, way of life for human beings. And we'll just get to the punchline here. It's the best gin I've ever had in my life. Uh, so it, sometimes I, I guess I'm a skeptical person. Like when I hear companies kind of talk about a strong mission statement, like, I don't know, sometimes I'm like, I don't, maybe the stronger the mission statement, the lower the quality of the end product. This is not the case here. And this is one of the reasons why uh, I was so excited to come back here. I was at Bar Hill. I showed up by myself, did not tell anyone I was coming, um, and just wanted to experience this place for myself. And it's it really is so exceptional. 
And then to find a company that I think is doing it as well, if not better than everybody in the category. And there's also the mission statement. And it's not just a tacked on story. This is kind of why I was so happy uh, when you were willing to sit down and kind of do this conversation. But yeah, there's, there's a lot to this story. And the beginning of that story is it started with a beekeeper. Yeah. And, and thank you. I mean, the words are really kind and, you know, we're, we're super proud of our work as well, you know, but to be honest, as distillers, our job isn't that hard um, because we're working with some of nature's most incredible materials, which is raw honey fresh out of the hive. And um, you can ruin raw honey. You can destroy great flavor. Um, but as long as you handle it with care and you keep it raw as long as possible and you keep it intact and you make sure that those rich botanical nuances that live within honey come through in spirits, you know, you, the odds are pretty good that you're going to make a good spirit. Um, what folks don't often realize with honey is that we think of it as a sugar and it is a sugar. So that makes sense. But um, it's so much more than like a replacement for cane sugar or a replacement for, for, for maple. You know, what bees are actually doing is, you know, literally scraping the earth of its rich botanicals. You know, when you think of terroir, you know, there, there is no greater example of your surroundings than, you know, take 20 or 30,000 bees and let them go out and gather nectar and pollen and propolis and bring that back to the hive and dehydrate it into, you know, a rich sugar substance and then take that out of the hive and bring it fresh into the distillery. You know, we have a responsibility at that point to, to take that honey and, you know, do right by that honey and, and bring it, you know, out to the spirits industry or consumers, wherever they may live and, um, and make sure it delivers in a gin, in a vodka, in a spirit, in a way that supports, you know, making a great cocktail. And this is something that you and I were talking about earlier, which is funny to me, sort of, um, <laughs> it's a very interesting path or route to informing the world and making sure we continue to be aware of the significance of bees, not just to making very good gin and vodka, but to like, I don't know, the literal health of the planet and our survival as human beings. I don't know. I don't actually don't think that's an overstatement, but you were like, we're getting this mission and spreading the knowledge of pollinators and their importance through what you call cocktail culture. You know, gin is at the epicenter of what we call cocktail culture. You know, when you look historically, gin was two thirds of the cocktail menu before, during, and after prohibition. You know, gin is, it's a celebrated um, beverage. It's lost its steam to some degree, right? Products like vodka, and we can get into that yeah. if, if we want to, but, you know, things like that have really just, with good marketing, sort of stir stormed the market and convinced us flavorless, odorless, neutral makes sense. Um, the reality is when we order a plate of food, we don't want flavorless, odorless, neutral. And we order a drink, we don't want flavorless, odorless, neutral. We want something flavorful, um, something that tastes good, and hopefully something that helps us support the health of the planet. So we, um, we didn't come into the gin business by way of cocktail culture. We came in through agriculture. And with Todd's life with the bees, um, I'm a lifelong Vermonter. I mean, I grew up gardening. I grew up in a very agricultural community. 
you know, farming is just a way of life for us. Um, and there's not a lot of farmers out there getting rich. And there's not a lot of bees out there that aren't struggling with colony collapse and mites and all these, you know, things that are plaguing um, the hives. And it goes way beyond commercial beekeeping, right? There's pollinators all over the, you know, the monarchs are, are, are now on the endangered list, right? So, like, the human impact on planet Earth is just devastating to the health of the very things that are pollinating the foods that we expect to be at the grocery store, right? So, when you look at that grocery store aisle and you walk in and the food's there just like it's supposed to be, if you take away the pollinators, one-third of all that food goes away. Right, one third of every bite of food that we eat depends on a pollinator. While we're, you know, agriculturally speaking, you know, filling our land full of you know pesticides and and commercially produced fertilizers, and all of that is just destroying the very things that we depend on. So we we see our mission um, as something that's pretty easy to spread, right? Because we spread it through cocktail conversation. Right. So we feel like if we can start a conversation that leads people back to a place of understanding the importance of pollinators, and we can do that with a gin that is actually made from raw honey, it's a pretty easy story to tell. And it, it, it tells itself. Um, so as long as we do good work here in the distillery, our mission is something that's, that's, um, it, it's something that people like to hear and then go tell their friends about. As you said, gin, not the most popular spirit at this particular moment in time. And so I'd love to first just have you say a bit more about like the history of gin. And then I kind of want to get into maybe a bit of a crash course on like gin production. Like what do you need to do to make good gin? So can we start with a bit of a history lesson? I mean, you, you said that at least in America, vodka is well talk about the rise of vodka or some of the other spirits in relation to gin because you said sort of it was the maybe original cocktail base yeah you know i mean gin you know again back in prohibition era just before just after and during you know gin was um it was cool it was hip you know it was a big part of cocktail culture um a lot of the drinks that we're drinking today you know, we call them the classics. Mm -hmm. Those are the drinks that people were drinking a hundred years ago, you know, and, and they're the classics for a reason. Uh, they're, they're still, you know, the, the best or foundationally the starting point for almost all the drinks that we drink today or the, all the variations that we find. Um, and, and gin was very much at the heart of that and other spirits as well, but gin, gin was core. It was the fifties and sixties where incredible advertising started to um, build the hype of vodka right? Uh, Smirnoff came out with the advertisement, vodka leaves you breathless. And there's so many different ways you can take the word breathless. And, and there were so many different ways it was implied. Um, but, you know, folks would take a, a, a lunch break and have two vodka martinis and think that their breath, you know, breathless. How would anybody ever know that I'm drinking? And, and uh, whereas a gin martini would, would reveal itself, you know, supposedly. Or supposedly the two vodkas didn't, you right. know, however you right. look at this. But the, um, what happened was volume happened and consumption happened and flavor didn't. And we saw this rise of vodka cocktails, which ultimately led to less of a need for the craftsperson behind the bar, right? I mean, bartenders are absolutely artists, 
and creators and you know the magic that happens behind the bar is is just it's 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 culinary you know they're they're the chefs of beverage and um when vodka took over there was no longer a need for the bartender it was more of like give me something that i can press a button and a drink comes out of it and you know a screwdriver mix it with orange juice and you know these sort of things happened and what ended up happening was cocktail culture died you know, it went through sort of the dark ages, you know, the 80s and the 90s and cocktail culture just didn't didn't really have a place anymore. And beer and wine did really well and people started drinking differently. What we've seen recently is, you know, we're back, you know, bartenders are back. There's this kind of rock star edge to to bartenders now and this beautiful culinary experience and, you know, the rise of social media and and sort of celebrating this incredible work that bartenders are doing. And, um, and as folks, again, these, 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 uh, this, this new um, kind of thought leadership around cocktail culture, people are doing their research and they're asking questions and they're going back to those historical cocktails. And we're slowly revealing, hey, this wasn't vodka. This was gin. Just a question about, and I like your trifecta. How do you formulate this with vodka? Your three words for vodka? Flavorless, odorless, neutral. <laughs> says says a guy who sells vodka makes and sells vodka flavorless odorless neutral why in and of itself did that lead to the demise of the kind of artistry of bartenders it it, it was it was the marketing of vodka you know vodka became cool it really did. And, and, and it's still, I guess, to some degree might be. I mean, Americans drink eight more times the volume of vodka than they do gin. And, um, you know, I, I think, you know, we get words like pure, clean, uh, you know, distilled 48 times or, you know, whatever. I mean, that, that's, that's marketing. You know, we, we do make vodka and I pick on vodka too much. I love the vodka that we make. We're going to talk about it. Yeah, we're, we're going to talk about it. Good. I mean, it, it, it's, it's, it's funny, you know, I, I get called out for that a lot. Why are you hating on vodka? You, you, you have a, you know, a vodka still named after your grandmother, you know, and, 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 and it's true. Um, but I, I like to push the boundaries of vodka while we focus on gin. All right. I think we might as well stay on this vodka thing just for a sec. Then we'll, we'll go back to the, my favorite gin in the world. But, um, so this is kind of the thing with vodka this neutrality. And I told you when I came into Bar Hill in August and I tried the gin, I tried your Tomcat gin, and I tried the vodka, my very first reaction to the vodka was, this isn't exactly vodka because of what you've said, right? And I was definitely operating on the definition you've laid out, neutral flavorless, colorless, nothing. It's kind of nothing, right? And your vodka isn't nothing. It is, is it, do I have this right? It is 100% distilled from honey? That's right. Yeah. So we're, we're taking um, pure raw honey and we're putting it through a fermentation process, right? So we're, we're essentially making mead. Using a white wine yeast, we're fermenting to, to zero bricks, meaning we take it to totally dry. We produce as much alcohol in, in the mead as possible. And then we distill it. And when we distill it, we distill twice and only twice. We put it once through what we call a stripping run, which is just a quick and simple distillation that pulls all of the alcohol 
away from everything that's not alcohol, mostly water, yeast. I mean, anything that remains from the honey fermentation. And then we take that solution that we've distilled, we put it through a second run, which is called a finishing run. And this is when it goes through the tall column. Um, one run through the tall column, we run very slowly and it goes through a series of plates, which, you know, the inner workings of the still, we have these plates. So there's this rectification process by vaporizing that, that alcohol. We're separating um, the characteristics by their boiling temperature and effectively putting out a very clean product as it should be. Um, the rules for vodka um, is that it needs to be neutral, you know, without character and distilled to 190 proof, which is 95% alcohol. So anything that's distilled to 95% alcohol has 95% alcohol has very little remaining. That's not alcohol, right? So it's it's just naturally going to be relatively flavorless, odorless, neutral, um, just by sheer distilling it to that um, concentration. What's interesting about honey is when you take it to 95% alcohol, it still holds on to this incredible botanical essence that comes from the fuel of the wildflowers where those bees are collecting nectar. And that's really special. And that's something that we're just simply not going to distill anymore. We're not going to charcoal filter it. We're not going to do anything more to it. We're going to take it at the 190 proof, 95% alcohol. We're going to dilute it down to 80 proof, which is what we bottle it at. Um, which is just a matter of adding uh, reverse osmosis water, just clean um, water, um, and then we bottle it. And when you taste Bar Hill Vodka, um, you know, are we pushing on the boundaries a little bit? Sure, we've been criticized of that. But I, th I still think it's neutral if you compare it to our gin, right? Well, yeah. You know, it's, 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 it's neutral. I still taste it and I say, that's vodka. I smell it and I say, that's a fuel of wildflowers that I'd mm -hmm. like to go for a hike in. Well, and it's, it's just an interesting approach, a opposite approach, right? And and hearing you talk and where we started this conversation, talking with an emphasis on the angels of agriculture, the bees and the work they're doing. And if you're really putting an emphasis on the botanicals and using rich, raw ingredients at the beginning, why would you want to filter the hell out of the product? In the land of vodka, that's exactly the way we've been trained is like, well, whichever vodka has been distilled the most, it's like, yeah, like you said, whatever, 48 times distilled. Well, 83 times is better than 48 times, but it's stripping everything out or purifying to the extent of, finish the sentence, I guess, I mean, killing everything rich and interesting about it. And so that's not your approach to vodka. I mean, just, just walk into a spirit store. There's like 40 feet of vodka. Even yeah. a small spirit store has 40 feet of vodka and then like 10 feet of gin, right? I mean, you know, there's bigger stores, there's smaller stores, but generally speaking, that's probably the ratio. All of those vodka brands, and not all of them, there's some great craft distillers out there. There's, there's, there's these, you know, yeah, there's some distillers using apples to make vodka. There's distillers, you know, using interesting things. But generally speaking, the aisle is filled with what we call conference room brands, you know, brands that are, you know, invented in a conference room that's loaded with all sorts of, you know, investment dollars and, and you know, just, just looking at the vodka market saying, what's the label? What's the fictional story we're going to tell? Where's the factory that's going to produce it? And what celebrity are we going to bolt onto this? And, you know, what strawberry cheesecake flavoring are we going to add to it? And, and it, it just gets worse and worse from there. 
all of those products are beginning with raw materials, you know, just like, you know, anybody else, but it's, it's not often potato or, you know, whatever we were all sort of, um, you know, made to believe vodka comes from. It's, it's usually just commodity corn, you know, the cheapest possible, you know, inputs, you know, the very same stuff that's going into our vehicles, you know, the very same stuff that's, that's making our gasoline cheaper is, is, is the base ingredient to produce, you know, low quality vodka. And it's the label that differentiates it. But why would you pay $40 or $30 or $20 for a bottle of vodka? I have no idea what's actually in that bottle. I have no reason to think it's not the very same thing. Unless you look behind the curtain and you get the story of the company and you find out you know, who's actually running it. Do they actually have a still at their distillery? Is there even a distillery? You know, are there real people you know, actually turning the steam dials on these things? Or is it just you know, sort of invented in some conference room somewhere? And so again, if people missed it, Bar Hill Vodka, 100% distilled from raw honey. Yeah, we are distilling all of our vodka from pure raw honey, fresh out of the hive. We, use, um, we, we bring honey into the distillery in 650-pound drums. I really just wanted to stick my entire hand in that drum and just go like, yeah, Yogi Bear or whatever, and just start shoving it in your face. But probably not the best move. I did not do that, by the way. I, have, I did not contaminate an entire drum of honey. We, we should probably have the honey dunk tank here. Yeah. You know? But yes. uh, no, it, it's, I mean, it's beautiful honey. We're working with, you know, beekeepers within this 250 mile radius. A lot of these beekeepers are folks we've worked with for our entire existence as a company. It actually goes further uh, beyond that. You know, Todd's worked with a lot of these folks for decades. And, you know, they're just family farms running apiary, supporting bees. And, you know, our vodka is made from 100% raw honey. So we bring this honey in, we put it through a fermentation process. We ferment to zero bricks using white wine yeast. We're essentially making a mead. And then we distill um, through our column still just two distillations. And that's, we're, we're not going to process it any further than that. So that's how vodka works and how you all do vodka. Let's talk about gin, like literally from the beginning, like how do you make gin? Because it sounds like unlike vodka, it's not about purification upon purification, stripping out upon stripping out. How is gin made? Yeah, so gin is focused on botanicals, right? The art of making gin is is, um, distilling, extracting oils from botanicals um, so that you can celebrate those flavors. You know, we're working with um, juniper. That's the only botanical that's going in our still. So we're running a distillation process. Uh, we're cooking an ethanol solution through a bed of juniper, and that's extracting that juniper oil. Um, there's a lot of gins on the market with several botanicals, and that's that's um, makes a lot of sense. That's where you bring in a lot of um, you know interesting flavors. We use juniper. It's the one required ingredient for gin. You can't make a gin without juniper. That's that's against you know federal rules. Um, but juniper has this interesting characteristic. It's it's like piney and it's resinous and it's drying. That's why London Dry is called London Dry. You know, it's it's got this drying characteristic. It works really well with honey, right? Honey has a sweetness. It has a body. Um, but honey also has these botanical layers. And juniper is the perfect balancing act for this to take the sweetness of honey down a couple layers. And when you peel back the sweetness of honey um, and it doesn't go anywhere. You're just balancing that, right? Like just like with beer, malt, hops, yeah. right? Great balance. Um, juniper honey, 
another great balance. But when you balance those out, there's these botanical layers that are within that raw honey. Where have those bees been? Where are they collecting nectar? Um, it's the greatest mystery of our process, something that we continue to strive to really truly understand, which quite frankly, we still don't. But it reveals those layers and you can taste those layers. So people taste Bar Hill Jid and, and, and they come up with all sorts of theories of what they're tasting. And you know, every botanical under the sun could be mentioned, but the reality is that it's countless botanicals. You know, we just simply don't know where the bees have been, you know, what they've brought back to the hive and what's actually going to you know, reveal itself in the finished gin. In the wine world, right, we're all pretty familiar with like we're putting years, we're affixing years to labels, right? Ah, this is the 2018 whatever, this is the 2022 and everybody likes the 18 better than the 22 or whatever. Should we be doing something similar to gin, putting years on things because this isn't the same product year in and year out, is it? Yeah. And it's actually, unfortunately, or fortunately, depends on how you look at it. Depends if you work in the lab or the distillery, I suppose. But, you know, it's not just the years. It's also the seasons within the year uh -huh. with honey. You know, early in the season, we're going to get a lot of clover, apple blossoms. That's going to produce <clears throat> a different honey than um, midsummer honey. And, and especially, you know, the fall, late season honey, you're getting into more like goldenrod and, and some of these flavors that become almost more um, deeper and darker and almost like um, like pushing near like a, a molasses sort of, um, you know, look and feel. One of the reasons why we produce vodka as well as gin is we're able to, we really strive to keep our gin as consistent as possible while embracing this beautiful work that the bees are doing. And one of the ways that we do that is we take those, the seasonality that presents itself and we taste it and we bring it into the lab and we, we, we have a variety of tests that we do, you know, color, sensory, all sorts of, um, you know, kind of um, shine light through it. You know, really, really, I mean, we have, we have a whole bunch of sort of proprietary things that we've developed to try to figure out, understand and characterize honey. But those outer edges, those ones that don't match, those are perfect for the, the vodka market, right? The vodka market that's really lacking any sort of character. We take the honeys that just simply don't match. Those are the honeys that might actually reveal themselves in vodka. And we say, hey, let's be hopeful. Maybe we can actually taste how different that barrel is from that barrel, but only in a small portion of what you taste in vodka because it's distilled to 95% neutral. And this has been like a recurring question on our crafted podcast is the question of consistency, right? And whether that consistency Every time out of the gate, if every bottle of Bar Hill gin that I pick up, do I, as a consumer, demand that it tastes really like indistinguishably from the last bottle I got? That is your, sounds like your answer is that's actually kind of what we're going for, but we have all these beautiful ingredients. And so if something, maybe it's actually super interesting but it's just different enough or outside of our parameters of what would count as a Bar Hill gin, well, we'll just roll that into the Bar Hill vodka. And it's not to say that it's some inferior product. It's a different product that falls sort of outside the boundaries. Yeah. I mean, it's consistency is such a funny one with, with raw honey. Um, I would say as a general statement, 
We're incredibly consistent, you know, considering how raw this is. I mean, you know, we, we bring in honey, these drums, we open up the lid. One drum could have pure honey. You'll see no speck of wax or, um, you know, any sort of remains of the hive. You'll open up another one and it'll have four inches of wax on top of it. Pollen, propolis, you know, sometimes there's, there's bees in there and we scrape that off and we'll get down to that raw honey, but you know that whatever's on top is indicative of what what was it within that barrel and so those are two very different barrels and we need to make the same gin out of it so it's an incredible challenge we have really and we've been doing this for a little over a decade now so we're very good at it um at least compared to you know how we used to be right so so <laughs> it's uh, it's something that we continue to learn um but what's been really interesting for me is you know we're not going to change our business model for the sake of precision and consistency we have partnerships with beekeepers and we want to buy all their honey we want to make sure that they don't need to think about how do i get honey into a honey bear so that i can figure out how to market and sell it we need those beekeepers focused on taking care of those bees and that's what they're really good at so we love when we get weird and obscure barrels that don't match like i said we put it into a vodka program and and we keep everything else really confined for gin um we do have a quality lab here on site which is really helped us you know go through a pretty thorough process so nothing would go to market inconsistent um but that doesn't mean that we don't produce things that are inconsistent but we have a variety of ways that we can we can work with that um, to make sure that anything that goes to market with a bar hill label is definitely going to deliver you know if, if you're a bee's knees you know cocktail drinker you're going to use bar hill and you're going to make a very consistent bee's knees you know at your home bar so I have no idea how you all like <laughs> how this actually works, but let's say if we had 10 barrels of honey, how many of those barrels might end up falling outside of the right <laughs> raw ingredient mix, you know, to make it a legitimate Bar Hill gin product? Probably about four. Wait, four out of 10 go into the gin or six out of the 10 go into? Four out of 10 would probably meet the standard to go into the gin. That's definitely lower than I would have guessed. Yeah. So the gin is sweetened with a little bit of raw honey and we're bringing in that botanical characteristic via the raw honey. The vodka is made from a honey base. Yeah. Right. So 100% of the vodka is yeah. made from a honey base. So it takes tremendously more vodka yeah. to produce or honey rather yeah. to produce vodka than it does gin. So first off, just sheer volume that we need. Yep. Vodka is very hungry and, and we're going to, we're going to feed it a lot of honey. Um, gin is a little bit different just in the way that we're using the honey. So that naturally just changes the math a little bit, but there's a variety of tests that we need to pass, right? The first one is just visual comes in. That's the wrong color. That doesn't taste right. Um, you know, we, we, we have sort of the outliers that are very obvious. They present themselves very quickly and, and we sort them. A couple other tests that we run and eventually we get into this test where we actually have to scoop out of the drum, take it into the lab. We, we, we put it into a solution and we shine lights through. We look at how the proteins are suspended within that honey. And, you know, this is, this is one of the more interesting and one of the newer tests that we've developed. But this will actually reveal to us that we have honey that may be challenging in the filtration process when we're all done and we're ready to bottle it we put it through a filter and that just kind of you know takes out any sort of haziness that might collect 
um, and makes makes you know makes the bottle look presentable on the shelf. Every once in a while, we get some haziness, but we've figured out a process that will help us determine which honeys, which drums could be problematic when we get to filtration before we ever mix it into the gin. And that has really helped us, um, you know, um, utilize our resources well. But what's interesting about this is that we, it doesn't tell us what's going on at the hive, right? It tells us which drum might be problematic but it does not tell us why it's problematic. And that's, you know, after a decade, you know, in the business and working with honey every single day, we feel like we're pretty smart with honey these days, but we're like, are we literally just getting to the point where we're asking the right questions? It's pretty wild to hear you say that, like in the year 2022, that we're kind of just figuring out honey, something that's, I mean, like, you talk about that a little bit, like we sort of talk about the brain, you know, like we're just kind of figuring out how the brain works. I, I mean, I don't, I don't quite know what to say about that other than it is a little surprising to me that we didn't sort of figure out everything there was to know about bees like 100 or 200 years ago. I mean, I think it's human nature to, you know, wait until the problem is unsolvable to start working on it. I mean, climate change, you know, it's, it's, you know, are we past the point of no return? I don't know. But suddenly when they start saying that on headlines, people start thinking maybe we should solve the problem. It, you know, I mean, I, I, I hope we're not, you know, there with bees. I mean, you know, this, this business obviously depends on bees, but it goes so much further than this business, right? Everything that we do depends on you know, just, just a healthy ecosystem and bees are as much a part of that as people are. And we've got to make sure that all that stays in balance or make sure that we're not the ones throwing it out of balance. Again, as I've said, um, Bar Hill Gin is the best I've ever had. I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about, in your opinion, what goes into making an exceptional gin versus a rather run-of-the-mill, mediocre, not, not even terrible gin, but just like a pretty average gin. You, I think you've touched on some of the elements here, but... I mean, I, I view, like I said, I, I, I came to distillation by way of um, agricultural preservation, right? I'm, I'm, I'm not here because there's a cocktail that I love and you know, that led to a gin that I love, which led to a desire to go make or recreate that gin. You know, I'm really here because agriculture is beautiful. You know, we live in a place here in Vermont where, you know, we have just incredible rock star farmers growing amazing foods and those foods need shelf life. And the still is a great tool to add value to agriculture, um, to add shelf life to agriculture and to take you know, products that are grown on the farm and put them in a way that we can bring them into any city in the world and, and, and deliver them to a happy consumer. And everybody along the way in the supply chain can earn a living. And that's, that's, a, that's my purpose, you know, personally. You know, I, I, I'm serious when I say connect cocktail culture to agriculture. I think distillers can build that bridge. And I think when we build that bridge, you know, society can drive on it. And, and I think it's an important, the bridge is there for food. Why is it not there for spirits? So, um, so what makes a good gin? I mean, I, I'll probably broaden the question to spirits in general, you know, and I think, I think of the art of distillation is to take crops and to preserve them in a way that celebrates everything that's beautiful about them, right? So when we distill, we're taking uh, sugar, 
fermentables. We're creating alcohol. We're putting it into the vapor state, right? We're boiling this and we're cooking it until it's, it's a gas. And then we're collecting that and, you know, um, putting it through a condenser that makes it cold again, which makes it liquid again. And then that spirit is what you taste and you leave a lot behind. And it's a beautiful separation. You know, as a distiller, you get to play with, well, what do I want to keep? What do I want to let go of? And there's a variety of ways to create those separations and concentrations. And the still is a tool. And there's a variety of ways that we run stills, whether we're using columns or or just a pot still or, you know, sort of a hybrid approach and how we adjust the deflagmator, you know, and, and which is just a fancy German word for condenser. But, you know, like like how we're running the plates. I mean, there's a variety of controls that we we get to play with. But ultimately what flows out is this beautiful spirit and and the, the, you know there's heads cuts and tails cuts and a variety of other things that we have to do so i'm kind of skipping over a lot of steps here but the actual distillation in my mind is is that's the that's the execution that matters you know and when i say distillation it's a broader term i mean distillation is not just physically running the still You've got to go through the fermentation process. You've got to select the right raw materials. If it needs a mashing process, you've got to put it through the mashing process. And the journey from, you know, harvesting this at the farm to presenting this to a bartender that's going to make a great cocktail is a very long journey where a lot can really go wrong. And so I I, I look at fine spirits as, you know, an opportunity to sort of evaluate a spirit and say, how did they do it every step of the way? And there's a lot of stuff on the market right now that's, you know, there's some craft distillers that are making things that aren't that great. There's some craft distillers that are making things that are wonderful. All of that experimentation is beautiful. The problem is the fact that everything else, which is like 80% of the store, was all made in the same factories. You know, so if we can get away from the mass produced, you know, volumes of spirits that are telling, you know, fictional stories from conference rooms and get into more of how did this farmer and this distiller and, and, you know, this bartender partner to create this experience. I think that's where the, uh, the real quality lives. You've mentioned this twice. I think the fictional stories, what would be, let's just say a hypothetical example of a fictional story. That is being told in the gin world. We're gonna. I'm gonna bring you back into gin. Uh oh, Brian's getting shy. I don't want to pick the wrong battle. Um, <laughs> there, there's some big companies out there. Um, hypothetical. We're just talking in hypotheticals. For a long, long before I was distilling, my dad would drink gin and tonics, and he'd buy Gordon's gin. And honestly, I think Gordon's is a for the price point, and I mean, it's a pretty good gin. It's it, they've they've done a fine job. Nothing against Gordon's. I wouldn't mention a brand name if I was going to say anything otherwise. But I thought my dad could have a, a nicer bottle of gin. So for Father's Day, for quite a few years, I bought him a really what I thought was a nice bottle of gin. I figured it was made by a small group of people in a really special part of the world with a lot of passion for producing um, a gin, and it felt really good to give that to him as a gift because I knew he wouldn't buy it for himself. And then as I got into the gin business and really started to pay attention to more of like, you know, outside of the, the, the apiary and the bees, I started to look at the spirits industry and, you know, the spirit store and the shelf set and who owns these brands. And I realized that the brand that I was buying for my dad for several years, thinking that I was buying him something really special was owned by 
you know, a mega company that owns several brands and owns a whole bunch of, you know, they, they own rums and they own whiskeys and they, and, and, you know, it was just this sort of feeling of, you know, that was a pretty serious purchase for me to buy my dad a special bottle of gin. I, I thought long and hard about the price point and which one I should buy for him. And, and I think spirits consumers do that, right? It's not just the, you know, a, a four pack of beer. You know, this is, this is a bottle that'll last you for a while. Um, you know, people are spending 30, 40, 50, 60, you know, $200 for a bottle of spirits these days. That's, that's an important decision. And when you peel back the layers of that brand, I think you should be able to find, you know, the real story of how this brand was produced, where it's produced, you know, who made it. And that's not always the case. And I think consumers are often, um, often fed a label and with hopes that they don't look any further. Okay. I want to push you on this a little bit. I hear you talking about, okay, you're telling like a fake story. I thought you might go into sort of some of the trade shortcuts where whether it's just in general cheaper ingredients or if we, turns out, if we just throw a ton of juniper, a ton of it, throw a bunch of it into a vat somewhere, it will actually mask a bunch of imperfections and it won't, and you, the result won't be like a balanced gin, but people will recognize it as gin. You haven't said anything along these lines. You've talked about the fictional story and I, I hear where you're coming from on that front, but I like, okay, but beyond the story, like into the actual craft of the production. I don't know how to I don't know how to know. I, th I think that that's the authenticity piece for me. You know, it's, it's, um, I, I simply couldn't tell you where it's made or how it's made. Maybe it is the world's greatest spirit made at the world's greatest distillery, but they didn't tell you that. Huh. Right. So, you know, I, I, and, and I, it, it's very different. I mean, this isn't like, um, like this is this is problematic and this is everything great and and it's just binary like that you know there there's there's all sorts of different approaches all throughout the world but what's happened in the spirits industry is you know we went through prohibition you know about 100 years ago prohibition ends and there's a handful of companies that maintained a medicinal license through prohibition so whiskey you know became medicine right if you had the license to sell it and at the end of Prohibition, um, there were about a handful of companies that had old whiskey that tasted a lot better than young whiskey. And they had an incredible head start. And those companies, they all have different names today through a series of mergers and acquisitions, but those are the same licenses from 100 years ago, right? From 1933. They're still in business today. And those are the very enormous companies today that own most of the brands that are in the spirits aisle. So where it's produced, how it's produced, it's often hard to really understand. But generally, you know, one company might have a ultra premium bottle of gin and a you know bottom shelf bottle of gin and every price point in between. And it's sort of like a deck of cards and they've got every single card in the set. And we as consumers walk in and you might be drinking rum this evening or you might be craving brandy or you might you know, want to make gin cocktails. You could buy three bottles, one from each category, all owned by the same company, all telling three very different stories from three different parts of the world. And 
you know, is it a true story? Is it a fictional story? We, you know, we just simply don't know. And then you've got craft distillers coming out doing things in, in, you know, a fairly challenging way to navigate this business because it's a three-tier system. We sell to a distributor that sells to a store or restaurant that sells to a consumer. The three channels of commerce are really um, dominated by the same handful of companies. All right. So the thing I'm hearing you say first and foremost is you want to know the processes and where the stuff is coming from. And you would feel better as a consumer of gin if companies were being more transparent on those fronts. There's what I want and then there's what consumers want. And I, I think they're similar. You know, I, I think part of why we built this distillery here was to make sure that anybody felt welcome to come into this distillery, you know, meet our bartenders, you know, see the grain silo, you know, see the raw honey, um, understand the process, you know, meet Scott, Ron, Devin, you know, meet Patrick, Maddie, you know, meet the whole team and say, I know what these people are doing. I know the farmers they're working with. You know, I trust this process. And this is a bottle that I'll buy and take home and share with my family or my friends and feel good about that and know that, you know, the farmers along the way are being well cared for and the bees along the way are being well cared for. Let's talk about the like broader gin world. As you know, just a few days ago, I was talking with John and Jen Kimmich at The Alchemist. John has a few strong opinions about the beer world, <laughs> some of the trends that he absolutely thinks are a bit short-sighted and will be, I think, short-lived. Are we seeing the same kind of experimentation, maybe I'll even say wackiness, like in the gin world? Or is it a more kind of traditional category or space? There are similarities to beer, you know, um, in, in, in sort of the um, how craft you know, craft beer really, you know, obviously became quite a big thing for all of us. Um, and you're seeing that with craft distilling. Um, there's slightly more um, stylistic rules with spirits. Um, it's a little, I would describe it as a little more narrow. Yeah. Brewers might say, well, beer's narrow. But there's not the same, like, bourbon has to have a certain percentage of ingredients, right? There's nothing like that in beer. Yeah, I mean beer beers there's definitions of style and then there is a fair amount of play within those styles. Um there's areas where you can play and there's areas where you cannot play. Um I'll give you an example. We we make a barrel-aged gin. I just said barrel-aged gin, but I can't put that on the label, right? So because the um Alcohol, Tobacco and Trade Bureau um doesn't feel like gin should be aged. Even though there's nothing wrong with me aging gin, I just can't tell you that I age gin. But the gin, <laughs> the gin has taken on the color of the barrel. It's obviously spent time in the barrel. So, um, you know, we, we actually... Um, so, so, whiskey or bourbon, if it wasn't aged, we would immediately throw it away. But gin, if it's aged <laughs> in the way that our friends whiskey and bourbon have to be, then we're we're in all kinds of problems. Exactly. You actually can't call whiskey whiskey until it's been in a barrel. It doesn't matter how long it's been in that barrel. It could be an hour, but it's it's uh, it's actually called new make. Um, um, people often call it moonshine or white lightning, but um, but whiskey needs to go into a barrel to call it um, whiskey. And um, gin, you can put it into a barrel. 
you just can't tell your consumer that you did. So it, it's silly. Um, but you know, ultimately like our, our, we, we call it Tomcat gin. That's our, our barrel aged gin. Um, on the label, it says barreled. That was a wrestling match. They ultimately let us use that word. Ah. Felt like a privilege does every day. Um, but we were able to say, uh, you know, barreled gin. This is weird. What? And I mean, let's say a bit more about Tomcat. So turns out it is brownish. Well, so let me, let me share how we came to Tomcat. Um, it's a really special product and, and it, it's, it's amazing how, I mean, it's something that I personally really loved when we came up with this and I didn't know if the world would like it, but it's, it's just been such a joy for me to see people also agree that this is an interesting flavor. You know, I was a brewer before I was a distiller and I always thought I'd be working with grains. I, I didn't know I was going to fall in love with honey. I didn't know that honey had the complexity that it had. So I, um, I've shifted my thinking very much so. But um, when I started distilling, I said, we'll start with gin and then we'll move into whiskey. And I thought for sure we'd be making a lot of whiskey by now. Um, but I fell in love with gin. Our team fell in love with gin. And, um, but more importantly, we started to realize we're out in marketplace and, you know, we'd, we'd go to New York or we'd go to Boston and we'd bring Bar Hill gin. And we were so proud of the work that we were doing and we'd be pouring gin and we'd hear other distillers pouring their gin. And they'd say things like, um, if you'll just buy my gin while my whiskey ages, I'll sell you whiskey later on. And it was like, I called the gin apology. And we're pouring gin that we're really proud of. And I'm saying, why is anybody in the world apologizing for their gin? So it shifted the way I thought about our whiskey production, which was pretty small. We, we, we never were making much whiskey back then, but I said, I don't want to talk about whiskey anymore. You know, I'll keep making it. We're going to stay patient with it, but I'm not going to tell the world that we're making whiskey. I'm going to tell the world that we're really proud of gin. And that really shifted how we worked in the distillery. You know, we really said, let's be content with what we're doing and let's really understand juniper. Let's really understand raw honey. But interestingly enough, we were scaling up our gin still. We had a little 15-gallon direct fire still. And we were were onboarding this new piece of equipment, which was a 300-gallon steam jacketed still. And we had to create the same gin on a very different still because we wanted to get away from direct fire. It's just dangerous, probably very much not the safest part of our journey um, running a you know 170 proof gin out of a direct fire piece of equipment in a small room so it was nice to to get away from that but it was quite a journey it took us um took us about 18 months to go from um delivery of that still to get the flavor right which was quite a journey for a small company and um while we were running the 15 gallon still uh, we, we distilled 400 batches in 2012, just trying to keep up with market demand and on a small still. So we're making this gin that tastes really good, but we could still detect it in a blind taste test. We said that's from the new still, that's from the old still. As delicious as it is, as it is we just can't put this in the Bar Hill bottle. Yeah. And at the same time, I was having all sorts of issues with our whiskey still, and I wasn't able to run any whiskey. We didn't have the money to run any batches of whiskey. We had to get this new gin still running. And I just bought a couple of uh, brand new American oak barrels because I had every intention of making bourbon. And um, those barrels would have dried up. You've got to get something in barrels or else they're going to they're gonna leak. So I've got this 
really good gin that I can't put in the bottle. I've got these barrels that don't have whiskey mm. going in. And I said, you know what? Call Ta-da. it procrastination, but I'm just, <laughs> I'm going to put that gin in there. I'm not going to dump it down the drain. I'm just going to see what happens. And it, it, w- it was just, you know, not that long in that barrel and we're pulling samples and it was incredible to get all of that juniper and then all of that dense, you know, um, you know, freshly, these are brand new barrels, so new char. These are, these, these things have just been on fire right at the cooperage and all of that, which is the, you know, characteristic of bourbon is coming into gin and the juniper and the oak, it was creating this like coniferous aroma, right? It was like walking through a cedar forest and, um, it didn't feel like oak anymore. It didn't feel like juniper. It was, it was a beautiful blending. And then, and then we add a little bit of honey into that, which brought a whole new layer of botanicals. And it was just a beautiful spirit. And I, I couldn't believe it. I thought, am I the only one that likes this? But this is something that I can't, you know, pull my nose away from. And, and um, so anyway, um, we, we started to collect feedback. Um, we ended up actually uh, doing an event in New York at Astor Wine and Spirits. And um, we brought some samples down to the event. We brought the, the little still down because it was so small, we could actually pick it up and put <laughs> it in the truck. And we, we poured some for folks and, um, and we got some incredible feedback. Everyone agreed the the, the, same, the, the age time that we, we thought was the best, everybody really, really loved it. And it was, it was just clearly a product that we had to take to market. So anyway, we, we'd been calling it Tomcat in the distillery with no plans to call it that on the label. Um, but by the time we actually went to market with this product, it had taken on such a personality in the distillery. Everybody referred to it as Tomcat. And, and it was, um, we had a fair amount of inventory by the time we got the TTB to actually approve the label. They wouldn't let us put gin on the label originally. They made us call it a distilled spirit specialty. Wow. So couldn't Sexy even put name. gin on the, yeah. exactly, the, the distilled spirit specialty aisle. Yeah. But we had to convince people that this was a gin, even though it looked nothing like a gin and didn't say gin on the label. But despite that challenge, um, we launched it and it sold out in three weeks. And instantly we said, we, we should have made more of this stuff. So how do you describe it or talk about it? It's a junipery whiskey. It's not a whiskey. It's not uh, a whiskey. It is truly a gin. And it's distilled the same way we make Bar Hill gin, but then it goes into a brand new American oak barrel which is very rarely used in gin production. You would normally save those for your whiskey yep. production, but again. So I'm talking the layman's description. If someone's like, they're driving right now and they're like, they just missed their turn off and they're like, wait, what was that Tomcat? So the layman's description, <laughs> I, feel like, I feel like I'm just trying to get you in trouble a bunch, which was, is unintentional, but it's kind of a junipery whiskey-ish thing, but it's actually a gin, folks. It is literally gin. It's just gin that's been in a barrel. It's, it's definitely a gin. It does attract the whiskey consumer in a big way, um, particularly whiskey cocktail drinkers. It's a, it's a s- simple swap, right? A, a Tomcat old-fashioned, um, a Manhattan you know, take out the rye, take out the bourbon, put in Tomcat gin, and it's just a beautiful, it's just, you know, it's, it's a very simple swap and suddenly you're, you're getting a little bit of juniper, you're getting a little bit of honey. Um, some folks, because we're using a little bit of honey, might want to pull back on the simple syrup if they're making an old-fashioned, each to their own taste. I mean, you just sort of want to play with those ratios a little bit, but generally speaking, swap it out for the whiskey, make the same cocktail, um, and it's great. 
I'd say probably a majority of our Tomcat fans just drink it as is. Just pour it, you know, neat or with a cube. Or, or with a cube. Exactly. All right. Well, here's the deal. I actually just finished my Tomcat Old Fashioned. Uh, it was delicious. But I need a bee's knees cocktail. And we'll actually come back. I'll tell you. <laughs> I told you this anecdote already. It's a 100% true story about my experience back in Crested Butte with Bar Hill Gin and Bee's Knees cocktails. Um, so we're going to go get a drink and we will be right back in a minute. All right. We are back. We both have Bee's Knees cocktails in hand. By the way, I need to just stop and say you have a massive party going on out there. I don't think it's like a scheduled event. It's just a party. Like half of Vermont, I think, is out at the bar at the moment. It's uh, we have a loyal community that that uh, really supports the business. But no, we, we on site we have a full cocktail bar. We actually have two full cocktail bars, and uh, you know, I, I, I when we built this space, we thought about you know the way that brew pubs have have evolved here in the state of Vermont and everywhere across the nation. It's so great to go drink beer right from the maker. And we're in the gin business and um, what really um, the, the way to celebrate gin is with cocktails and cocktails, you know, depends on incredible bartenders. So when we built this distillery, we said the way we're going to do this is bring, you know, New York City caliber cocktails here to Montpelier. And, um, and we did that. We found some of the best bartenders in the area and we designed the space and really took the time to work through the design process, build out the team, build out the cocktail menu, which is, you know, evolving every single day. But we didn't know if Vermont was ready for cocktail culture to this degree. And we've just been blown away. It's, it's, and it's not just Vermonters. People are driving from, you know, all over the area and, and beyond. But, um, you know, we're right between Montreal and Boston. So we, we pull a lot of traffic from, from there. But, but yeah, it's Friday night on Gin Lane. So uh, <laughs> it's, it's happening out there. Uh, describe for people, tell them what exactly goes into a bee's knees cocktail. So bee's knees is a classic recipe. Um, it's just gin, honey, lemon. You know, this is, it's a simple, you know, three ingredient cocktail. Um, you know, we really strongly advocate for use fresh lemon, you know, squeeze fresh lemon juice. Um, we use, you know, honey, you know, our, our raw honey, I think is, is, is the best, but use, use a good quality raw honey, ideally something that hasn't been heated and filtered, you know, something with some real botanical flavor to it. Um, yeah, but yeah, shake it and, uh, you know, serve it in a coupe glass or, you know, whatever glass you choose. And, um, it's a great cocktail, you know, citrusy balanced. It's, it's just beautiful, refreshing. That is true. And now I will tell my anecdote. <laughs> um, I actually am kind of embarrassed to say this out loud, but this is in fact 100% true. So I was here in August, rolled in and just showed up, sampled Tomcat and the vodka. I think I had two bee's knees that night. Um, this drink is delicious. And so anyway, and then I went home and took with me a bottle of uh, just the regular original Bar Hill gin and a bottle of the vodka. Uh, a friend of mine came out. We opened the bottle of gin and it was 
gone. It was empty 48 hours later. And that is not like me. I think listeners of our podcast know I'm not sitting around, you know, throwing back like three or four or five drinks a night. But the craziest part, and I told you this, and I'm, I was like, this has to just be anecdotal. I don't know what was happening here, but I was kind of curious to hear if you've heard other stories like this. There was no hangover at all. And my friend was coming from California. So from sea level to my house, which is at 9,300 feet altitude, it, this was just rare. First of all, I think it speaks to how good this cocktail, simple cocktail, right? Three ingredient cocktail. But the whole no hangover thing, like what's happening here? So I'm uh, not a nutritionist, you know, I'm not a doctor. I, I, I would love to make that into marketing. There's probably a way to do that. Um, you but, can quote, you me. know, I, I yeah. <laughs> consider it done. This, this one guy in Crested Butte said this. Yeah. But, yeah. but the, um, you know, gin is, is a cleaner distillate than something like whiskey. And I don't say that as a knock on whiskey. I, I, I drink whiskey. I make whiskey. You know, when you're distilling, you know, you're, 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 you're running through a process where um, you're making cuts, heads, hearts, tails, right? The heads are what comes off the still at the very beginning. The hearts is, is what comes out in the middle and that's what ends up in the bottle and then, or the barrel. Um, and then the tails and the heads and tails, and the, I'm kind of skipping over a lot here, um, but the, the, the heads and tails are referred to as the congeners. And it's not a clean line, right? That's that's the job of the distiller to use, you know, sensory and 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 decision making tools to make those cuts. But it is a gradient. So those congener levels, congeners are bringing in flavor to the spirit, right? Whiskey is a very flavorful, and I'm just kind of picking on whiskey because it's what I know best. It's it's um it's a spirit I work with a lot. Um, but those congeners are where a lot of flavor lives. But it's also where things that can contribute to not feeling so well. Um, that said, gin can give you a hangover, just to be clear. I don't think I need to say that, but um, I, I don't know. You know, I, I mean, I, I love stories like that. I, I, think, um, I think gin generally is a little cleaner than a lot of other distillates, um, as is vodka, the one that I've been beating up on a little bit here. So I recognize that. But, um, but you know, there's also, um, you know, there's raw honey. There's some nutritional aspects. You know, yeah. maybe you're well hydrated and, you know, maybe just the, the stars aligned and things, you know, worked out. <laughs> well, yeah, it was um, it was fantastic, and I need to. I actually need to. My friend's coming back uh, from California, so I was told strictly like there needs to be another bottle of the gin here. So don't don't let me forget. Don't let me forget. If I leave here without that, I'm going to be in trouble. Actually, I wouldn't be doing my job if I let you forget. <laughs> but I I, um, I won't make any recommendations of of dosing okay yeah that's probably that's probably fair we talked a little bit about this particular facility and it's freaking cool and people can come right i mean what's your story here with tours or whatever how does that work yeah so anybody can come anytime and you should this this needs to literally be like a, put it on your pilgrimage list that's my advice. Sorry to interrupt. You may proceed. I, I love that message. Thank you. Uh, no, we, we love visitors. Um, you know, we built it here in Montpelier. And Montpelier is a small town, right? This is the state capital of, you know, Vermont. And there's 7,500 people. 
right? So that gives you gives you a sense of you know this is a very relaxed community. It's a great place to visit for a variety of reasons. Um, but we have um, you know this space is designed so that anybody can come in here. It's a fairly large space. Um, we host a fair amount of events here, but um, it's it's never too large, right? The way we've designed the space, each cocktail bar has its own sort of setting. Um, and I think anybody can find them, their their place of comfort here. We also have it set up so you can tour the hallway and get kind of a self-guided tour and understand more about what we do, our work. And then we offer, you know, tours, behind the scene tours if folks want to go in the distillery. I love to tour the distillery. I love to actually take people back there, open up a drum of raw honey, give them a spoon. And, you know, we, we scrape, you know, the top layer of wax off the honey and see how like real and from the farm this stuff is. And then take a little scoop and taste, you know, the the botanical essence of raw honey fresh out of the hive. You know, this is something that people are often really surprised. They don't think of honey as such an agricultural ingredient. You know, it, it's it's often just like the the bear at the supermarket, you know, which is filtered and and uh, you know just just heated, and and they've essentially killed all of what was beautiful about honey for the sake of um, convenience and and getting it through the the channels to sell it. What you see here is literally dented drums from the apiary. And these beekeepers are using these drums over and over and over. It is very real, very agricultural and delicious. Yeah. And I think bringing it back to the honey, I mean, just speaking about kind of commercially available honey, it is less thick. It will pour out of a bottle quicker or i guess we could say at all uh i mean your honey comes in a big mouth jar right like if it had a tiny little hole to come through like you you would it won't never pour. get to the no, honey. no it won't pour at all i mean our, our honey um it's raw and it crystallizes so it's it's um it's not rock hard but it's it's um you know it takes a fair amount of work to get it out of those drums um it takes a takes a spoon to get it out of the jar but the stuff is is um it's it's delicious i still have some at home. i actually put a, another order in because we crushed the two nights i'm talking about we crushed like it was the what's the largest size or the larger size the one pound the yeah. one pound yeah we took that out and so I had to put another order in. Yeah. But so I, I currently still have some at home. Um, I, I actually need to, though, get more of that because if there's anything like a repeat of the last time, I'm going to need more than I currently have. So fair enough. Uh, just, just taste honey responsibly, of course. <laughs> taste responsibly. Yeah. Talk a bit more, though, about some of the other interesting things about this facility. You know, we did just talk to, Vermont craft royalty, Jen and John Kimmich, uh, who are doing such incredible stuff on the sustainability front uh, at The Alchemist. Uh, but this building itself is not without its own kind of interesting elements on the sustainability front. So talk a little bit about that. Yeah, no doubt. It, it's um, And Jen and John are leaders in the space. I mean, we, we, we look up to them. We actually brought them to a team summit. We, we close up shop and bring the whole team together once a year. And Jen and John came and spoke to the team about this topic um, because they're so passionate about it. And, um, and, and they're you know, just, just unapologetic about it. You know, they're just going to do it the right way. And that, that's inspiring to us. 
um, we live by by a similar ethos. You know, it's it's um, you know this facility. I mean, a lot of this facility is designed on lessons learned in Hardwick. Right? We got started in Hardwick. We had a six thousand square foot distillery. Uh, we had a variety of stills that we designed and built on site over the years. Which, when I say design and built, I mean design built wrong, redesign <laughs> built wrong, and slowly fell in love with distillation through um, trial and error. And um, but in that process, you end up with you know condensers that are you know producing hot water, and the hot water is going down the drain, and you're saying, "Gosh, like." You know the world's spending all this money on fossil fuels and, and and essentially you know borrowing from from the earth's equity just to keep our facilities warm while we put hot water down the drain and that didn't feel good and every year we'd come around the table and say how are we going to fix this you know what's what's the process improvement what do we need to add and it always became um retrofitting was too expensive that that theme was like it was keeping me up at night and um so when we started designing this facility, we had engineers, we had architects, and we had the whole team that really helped us out. And we went over budget with every design. And it was really frustrating because we couldn't get the bank loan. And it was a whole variety of you know, business challenges that came with that. And in every single process, we come around the table and we hear the same message. Good news. We got it back on budget. And we'd say, great, what'd you cut? And it was everything related to sustainability. And it was like, this meeting's over. That's not cuttable, you know, because we'd already learned that issue. Like, you know, I, every time I was in Hardwick, I'd say, okay, we can't do it because retrofitting is expensive. So you don't get to borrow that excuse and then apply it to new construction. You can't, you know. So this became a five-year design and construction project where we, we just, we could not figure out how to get on budget. But we proudly, I say, we never cut the sustainability features out of this building. And that was just pride and determination and, and a commitment to, to build it right from the beginning. So some examples, you know, our, our distillery has, um, I'm often made fun of around here because I love our floor drains. It's like, like Phyllis, her column still is like beautiful and copper and everybody comes to see it. And I'm like, but did you see the floor drains? <laughs> um, but the, the um, but all of our, we have these huge floor drains, which are all designed for a variety of technical reasons, spill containment and whatnot. But we also keep all of our waste separated. So all of our stillage, the waste material after you're done distillation, inside of those floor drains are these giant, um, you know, four inch pipes that are directly connected to our stills. And we can go in there with a garden hose, we can spray the whole place down and our stillage is never going to be mixed with, with anything else. So we can keep that concentrated or as concentrated as possible. So it goes to a separate sump, which goes to the biodigester. So there's a lot of energy left, right? You know, product that ultimately wouldn't make a good quality spirit, but would make perfectly fine biofuels. Um, so we make sure that we keep that separated. And, and that was a quite an engineering feat to figure out how to tuck that into the concrete and keep things separated and understand where things are going um, at which time. The roof, um, if you drive from, from you know, the way in here, you'll see the building. The roof is covered in solar panels. We've got an 85 kilowatt solar array. Um, we have two reclaim systems, reclaim heat systems on site. So our process, obviously, we use a lot of cold water and process makes that water hot. We want to reclaim as much of that energy as many times as possible. So we do that in two ways. One, we have a reclaim system um, that allows us to use um, the heat from our process to heat up municipal water so that um, if we need hot water for 
other reasons, running tap water, washing dishes, those sort of things. There's no need to burn fossil fuels to, to, to warm that up. We've got plenty of heat right there in the distillery because we just made gin all day. Similarly, behind us, where, where we're sitting right now, there's a patio. And we've got this giant heat reclaim system that actually works off of a giant battery where we're taking the BTUs from our process and we're storing them in this giant battery, which actually holds them until the weekend when the production distillery is not that busy, but the cocktail bar is. And we have a heated patio outside that's working off of reclaimed heat from the distillery. Um, but we built a storage mechanism so that we can keep it there until the, you know, till the busier hours of the, um, of, of cocktail service. And, and there's a lot, a lot more even like, you know, using native plants all around the facility and really every single detail we could sort of pay attention to at the onset of construction was important to us. Um, if I can mention one more, yeah. I think this is important as well. It's often overlooked. Even the site we're sitting on, an old dumping ground for um, the granite industry. And so it was considered a contaminated site, even though the quote unquote contamination was really just granite blocks and hard to build on top of. But, you know, we often think about, um, we're currently working with a, with a consultant um, who's helping us measure greenhouse gas emissions so that we have something measurable so that we can actually manage it and, and do better, right? How do you, like, we all talk about sustainability, but none of us actually look at how sustainable or unsustainable we are. Um, so we're trying to get that actual measurable so we can get better every year and, and kind of keep score. Um, so Eva Murray is helping us with this and she's just been incredible. But she told the stories the other day about, you know, there's, there's factories out there that are being built where they're leveling like old growth forests, you know, things that are like precious and just like magical parts of the earth. that's going to take a hundred years to recreate. It's so much more rewarding when you take, you know, a brownfield or a site that humans already did damage to, even if that damage is minor, maybe it's major, but take on the process of bringing that back to a developable place and then build on top of that. And so I've lived here my whole life, driven by this site my whole life. There's never been anything over here. <laughs> and now I look over and I know this was once a contaminated, you know, granite contaminated site that we've now built into a community hub where people are coming around and learning about pollinators and having great cocktails. And, and you know, that's a rewarding experience for the whole team just to see the community, you know, come out and rally around this site that really not a lot was happening before us. I want to ask you about something that I think just wrapped up quite recently. If if I have my if I have any concept of time left at all, Blister has mostly like beaten that out of me. But Bees Knees Week, what is it? Yeah. So, um, well, we're enjoying a Bees Knees. Con- I'm done. You're enjoying. I enjoyed past tense. Yeah. I think this is now. I'm starting to see how we went through that bottle of gin in two days. We we could. We, do we need another? No, I, no. We're gonna, <laughs> the, you mean the, yes, but no. The, the um, you just just say the word. Um, so bees knees week. Well, let me tell you how it got started first. Um, this is 2017. Um, I was down in Asbury Park, New Jersey, and we had this event scheduled to to showcase Bar Hill with a couple of a uh, couple of restaurants and do some events and. Um, it's just a great cocktail community down there. And um, so we had this, this meet the distiller event and we were, you know, making cocktails and, and, and having great food and discussion. And then after we had a dinner with our distributor and which was really great. And then the third stop was at this bar and um, the bartender was also a beekeeper. 
And he he's making cocktails for us. Really great guy. He's actually making a bee's knees and garnishing it with bee pollen. And it was really like, it's just, just quite a treat. And he served our cocktails and he said, so what does your brand do for the bees? And, you know, without really thinking about it, I just started answering the question, talking about fair price to farmers and, and, and educating people. And he, he just sort of put me on my heels. He said, you just talked about people. You didn't talk about the bees. And it was such a moment. It was a wake-up call. You know, it was a self-reflective moment. And, and, you know, with a lot of the team and our distributor reps that represent the brand in New Jersey, and we all looked at each other and it was like, we can do better. I mean, you felt that vibe, unspoken vibe in the room. And it started this creative process. We're sitting at the bar having a cocktail and, and, and we were talking about what if we start an event called Bees Knees Week, where we come down to Asbury Park and we run around bar to bar, restaurant to restaurant and educate people on the importance of pollinators. And I'm driving home the next day thinking, gosh, that is a much bigger idea than just one neighborhood. This is something that would apply anywhere. Every city in America needs to know about the importance of pollinators. And we would love to bring Bar Hill to every city in America. And, and we can facilitate that conversation. And um, so I came back to Hardwick. The distillery was up in Hardwick. And, and I brought it to the team. And I said, I think we need to just swing big on this. Let's, let's, let's build this event. And we decided to do it. 2017, we, we launched it in September of 2017. Uh, first year, we had 300 restaurants across the nation sign up, which we were blown away by that. The next year, I think it doubled. I think it's doubled every year. This year, 2022, we just just finished the week. Um, it was the last week of September. And we had 2,400 participating restaurants and accounts um, helping us spread the message of the importance of pollinators by way of a delicious bee's knees cocktail. Um, the way the program works is... Um, Anybody can participate. Um, all you have to do is enjoy a bee's knees cocktail or buy one for a friend, um, make one at home, order it at a bar, however you like to enjoy bee's knees cocktails or cocktails in general. Take a photo, put it on social media, hashtag bee's knees week and tag Bar Hill Gin. And we plant 10 square feet of pollinator habitat. And the mission is to sort of take back what we've sort of laid asphalt over, right? We've just developed this earth to this place where bees no longer have a place to live and thrive. Um, so we think that if we can leverage the power of brand and conversation to give back to those bees. Um, so we're working with this incredible um, nonprofit called Be the Change that's focused on support on planting pollinator habitat. And um, one post, we plant 10 square feet of pollinator habitat. This year alone, we planted 250,000 square feet of pollinator habitat. 250,000 square feet. Yeah, it was, it was a huge success. We actually celebrated today with the team um, just to sort of recap. And, and uh, it's just been incredible to see, you know, restaurants and bars all around the nation, many of which don't even know Bar Hill, but they know that we need bees. And they're, they're getting behind it. They're telling their friends and it's, it's got a strong momentum. Yeah, that's really cool. In a year, because it just wrapped up, right? I just mean, wrapped was, up. Yeah, um, we'll get we'll get our blister audience involved next year. Yeah, it's that's a that's a very worthy cause, and yeah, we've had conversations about bees on blister in the last several years, but um, yeah, it's one thing to talk about it; it's another thing to be protecting and reserving, you know, areas and land for these creatures. So yeah, it's good stuff. When we work with Mike Kiernan from Be the Change, you know, 
we're planting this pollinator habitat and we go from, he actually has a way of measuring how many pollinators you see, you know, and, and it's a five-year process. You plant the land, you know, it's, it's, he's got a methodical way that you go about, you know, which plants get planted in which year and how it, how it builds. And, you know, he goes from, you know, 30 to 40 pollinators per increment to 350, 450. I mean, the, you know, he talks about, you know, bumblebee species here in Vermont. Like we used to have 17, but we're down to 10. You know, we all think about the bumblebee as one species. Well, the reality is it takes certain species to pollinate certain crops. And there's crops of, uh, I don't know, blueberries that certain bees just can't pollinate. And we lose the ones that can, we lose the blueberries too. And it's just amazing. And Mike is a much better educator on this topic. I'm just a student completely just, you know, listening to every word that Mike says and, and ready to hear more. Um, but you watch this transformation and you see life and you see species that you wouldn't otherwise notice. And it's just been an incredible process. And we're early on in, in watching the transformation of the land. But, you know, the 250,000 square feet that we plant this year, five years from now, we'll be able to go back and look at 250,000 square feet with five years of of building of life and it's it's just something we get to look forward to every year all right it is friday evening i've kept you a long time and we're so i'm going to try to start moving us toward a bit of a wrap up probably not that quickly but now that you have a little bit of gin in you we really haven't i've said that like this is my favorite gin I'm definitely not the only person who feels this way. And so what I wanted to do right now, and I feel like you're not going to like this question, so I'm going to need you to get over it a little bit and just we can blame the gin. You can have another sip of that bee's knees if you need. I want you to brag a little bit. Like you guys have won a ton of awards for this gin that you've been making. And yes, you've talked well um, in several different areas in this conversation about like the mission and why you're doing what you're doing. But can you just take a minute and talk a little bit about some of the accolades? And like, I, I was literally on a, we did a 75 mile gravel bike ride over two days. And I was, I found myself talking to a group of people and I was like, I think Bar Hill Gin might actually be the best product made in America. Like, you know, like we's like, what's the best product made in America? Is it a car? Is it a beer? Is it a gin? And, and so I was like, this shouldn't just be me. Talk a little bit. Let me, let me hear a minute of talk about some of the Bar Hill accolades. So we, we, um, we, we are very proud of the success of Bar Hill Gin and the brand. And, um, you know, it's it's a team behind everything that we do, and that team extends all the way back to the farm. So, I'll, I'll brag because okay. you you yeah, told me to, told but I'm to. I'm going to brag on behalf of a lot of people here, okay. and at a time where we we um, we needed this. So, you know, the pandemic hit. Right, we're in this twenty seven thousand square foot facility that we've worked for five years to build, and the first mortgage payment on this facility. <laughs> you know, we've been paying the construction loan. Boom. First mortgage payment shows up in March of 2020 and I'm locking the front door. And this team of people, we navigated that 
challenge, just like so many other businesses did. But it was it was really something. And we went through summer of 2020, spring and summer. And then we got news that um, and we've had a lot of gold medals and, and, and a lot of accolades and a lot of, a lot of distilleries do. There's a lot of competitions, um, but we've done incredibly well. And, and we're really thankful and proud and excited about that. But right at sort of that moment where the pandemic is just wearing people down, we got news that we received the world's first ever perfect score, 100 point gin, which has never happened ever before. <laughs> and it, like, I just remember it was like a time where like, you know, we were making hand sanitizer and like we were doing all these things that we just didn't design this facility to do. And the team was doing things that were so far outside of their job description and everyone was just working so hard. And then suddenly it was like, we just delivered the impossible perfect score. And it just like, it put the whole team into this, like we're back mode. And suddenly cocktail culture was coming back and, you know, backyard cocktails were happening. And, you know, we felt like gin distillers again in a time where we felt like we were producing hand sanitizer for hospitals, which is really rewarding work as well, but not what we're particularly good at. So um, we've done really well in competition. The team's really proud. Um, You know, you know, I don't distill many batches of gin anymore. You know, Scott, Ron, Devin, this team of distillers, there's so many other steps that matter as well. So, you know, I'm, I'm personally really proud of the way that I believe that we're making better gin now than the gin that I distilled five years ago. And that's, that's the power of teamwork. And I think we'll be making better quality gin five years from now than the gin that we're producing today. And, you know, I think that's why everybody shows up to work the way that, the, you know, th- that we do. And, um, and hopefully we continue to, to do well with metals. <laughs> you're going to be making better gin because you're going to hopefully understand honey better in five years. Right? That's, that's the mission. Yeah. If, if we can actually understand honey, well, I mean, if we can actually understand bees, you know, there's, there's, there's a lot save. of them. And save them. Yeah, I think we'll all be better off. Let's talk some more about whiskey. <laughs> you said earlier, you're like, I hope it doesn't sound like I'm, you know, talking smack about whiskey you you like whiskey you're a whiskey guy i've learned in the last whatever five hours of hanging out you also have some plans on making some not just plans we should say you're actually making some tell us about this yeah so we we do make whiskey uh we we don't talk about it much we're actually slowly starting to realize that we might want to start talking about the whiskey we've been making um, because we're probably going to start to sell it at some point. Um, I, I'm a firm believer that whiskey needs time and barrel, and that is a real business problem. Um, we're also firmly committed to never sourcing whiskey, and there's nothing wrong with that. Everybody makes their own decisions in this industry. We just really like to create. And by create, I mean distill, ferment, and farm. And um, so we, we've been making whiskey. You know, we work very closely with farmers. Todd, our founder, is now a certified organic rye farmer. Um, he's growing 80 acres of rye. And um, most of that rye comes right in here to this distillery. And um, we produce a rye whiskey, 84% rye, 16% barley. Rye is just a beautiful grain. You know, we plant it you know, in, in the fall, 
it, it, it overwinters, uh, just, just like Vermonters do, you know, and it comes out stronger, you know, on the other side. And, uh, it's, it's got a lot of character. Um, it's fun to work with. Um, we, our oldest barrels are about six years old. There's not very many of them. Uh, we're producing a lot more now than we were six years ago. So, you know, we're just not in a rush. You know, it's, 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 and I think our success within gin has, has given us the luxury of being able to think about patience. Hasn't given us the luxury of being able to afford to make a lot of whiskey, but it's given us the luxury of being able to hold on to the little bit of whiskey that we make for a long time. And that's been really rewarding because, you know, right now we're working on blending and pulling samples and really understanding the whiskey that we've produced and also looking at the agricultural cycles, you know, as that whiskey went into barrel. And there's, there's a fair amount of variation from barrel to barrel. There's also a fair amount of consistency in a lot of the things that we did. So we're looking at sort of how do we take our consumers on that journey, right? So, you know, as an example, you know, most grain farms, well, I don't know if this is a true statement, maybe not most, probably most, unfortunately. But, you know, they're treating dirt like it's asphalt, right? They're just spraying it full of pesticides and commercially produced fertilizers. And they're, they're growing grains on top of dirt that doesn't ever really absorb anything anymore. And what that means is they're just spraying liquid fertilizer right into the river. And when it lands in the river, it lands in the lake. And we're, you know, for the sake of drinking whiskey, literally polluting the earth, the water, the very ice that we pour whiskey on top of is polluted. And that's, that's just problematic. I don't think I need to explain how problematic that is. Um, but what Todd's doing and, and what the farmers that we work with are doing is, is, is resting the land and treating it responsibly. And the way that you, you know, take on, you know, pests and, and, um, you know, these sort of super weeds that are cropping up and, 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 um, you know, creating agricultural challenges is that you rest the land. And you let the diversity of life in that soil come back and then plant rye within it. And it's called fallowing the land and you, you rotate your crops. And there's a portion of your farm that doesn't grow anything other than maybe some cover crop and something that supports um, bringing that diversity, you know, into the soil. And, and soil is a sponge, right? Dirt is everything to us, right? If there wasn't this layer of topsoil on top of earth, we'd all be really hungry people. You know, it's, it's, it's so vital that we take care of the soil. But what's happening in agriculture right now is we're just ignoring the fact that there's, there's an ecosystem there and we're just letting it all wash into the river. And we're, we're losing our, our farmland. We're losing, you know, so many insects and pollinators and, and important parts of that ecosystem in the process. So, when we look at our whiskey barrels, we look at those as an opportunity again to start a conversation. And how do we share what we were doing on the farm? What were we doing in the distillery? How does that make this whiskey taste? And why does that matter? Because we want to make more whiskey. We're going to make more whiskey, but we need to grow healthier farms first. Have you done the whole pilgrimage to Kentucky? I have definitely been to Kentucky a couple of times. <laughs> I've, I haven't done it. It's It's amazing. I mean, I, I, I love, um, I love how the community in Kentucky has rallied around distilling, you know, it, it, it's a, it's a beautiful American industry. You know, we actually, we make rye whiskey, which I'm really excited about. I wanted to make bourbon for a long time, but I spent enough time in Kentucky and I said, 
you know, I'm not sure this is the space I want to play in. You know, it, it's, it's, there's, there's beautiful whiskey that I know not enough about. Um, I know about the brands, but you know, it's, it's, um, it's a thing, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a deeply rooted thing that goes on for decades, you know, you know, centuries, you know, longer than I've been distilling. And, um, I, I like to, I like to be a fan of bourbon while I, um, you know, play in gin. Last question. I want to ask you about growth. People who know Bar Hill like freak out, including the woman we saw at the bar earlier today, right? Who saw you and just started kind of like talking real fast and talking about, I think her quote, the end of her quote was she was on a girl's weekend or something. And now like the, the girls don't drink wine anymore. Like they, you've, they've been converted to gin. So I feel like people who know Bar Hill are like, yeah, we, we, we kind of freak out a little bit. And so I think there's always an interesting question with um, craft companies that are really doing well. There's a lot of people calling for, there are investors interested in the prospect of really, really blowing up in terms of size and scale. How are you thinking about growth at Bar Hill these days? Yeah, I mean, growth, growth is a, it's a complicated one. And, you know, we, we didn't take like a, an easy route when we built our business model. It wasn't really like a process. It was more of an evolution of, you know, we'll add this still and then we'll add this still and then we'll get this bank loan and, and things just sort of stack, you know, on top of one another. And before you know it, you're you're running a much bigger company than, than you ever thought you would be. And, and that's where I am today, to be honest. Um, you know, we have 70 full-time employees and um, that's something I take seriously. You know, that's something I'm really proud of. There's days where it scares me too, right? Um, but I, I think about growth, um, it, it depends on the company generally for me as a consumer. But, you know, when, when I look at the craft spirits industry and the spirits industry as a whole, I think it leaves a lot to be desired. And I think there's a lot of problems out there that make me want to either participate in the solution or sit on the sidelines. You know, I don't really want to buy products that I don't love. I don't want to buy products that don't feel like a part of change. And our mission, our work, everything that we do here has been a product of evolution. It's, it's team driven. You know, our we, Bees Knees Week didn't used to plant pollinator habitat. It used to raise money for uh, many bee-focused organizations. But we refined that. We realized that pollinator habitat was the most important thing that we could focus on. So that's what we do. So that inclusive process of bringing the team into that um, thinking has, has created a mission that's incredibly powerful. And I think about what we're doing and the work that we're doing as starting conversations that run all the way back to the hive. And we're just one of the stopping points along the way to the hive. And I think if our mission can continue on and spread and, and, and you know, bring better education about the importance of pollinators and we can produce and sell more gin in the process, and we can actually change the spirits industry so that the spirits industry wants to think about things that are equally as important, then I think our mission is successful. 
And so when I think about growth, I think, well, as long as we can do that without straying from our values or, you know, um, doing a disservice to, you know, the environment around us or the community around us, um, then I think growth is great. I actually think growth is an opportunity to support all of those stakeholders along the way, you know, team, community, environment. Um, but we, we do that through conversation and conversation pairs really well with cocktails. So I just think that we're in a position where as long as we can gear ourselves up as a team to say growth is something that we're going to work toward, then we're all the team that's a part of change. And that's a really exciting thing. Where can people find Bar Hill products these days? We are distributed in 33 states across the country. You can go to barhill.com. Most of those states have a store finder that works. We are in a 50 different countries here in the US as it relates to yeah. the spirits industry. Yeah. So everybody has different rules and we try our best to keep, keep our website working well. But if you come to our website and you plug in where you live, you should be able to find, um, find, find our products. Um, that's barhill.com. Um, you can also find us on Instagram at barhillgin. You can find me personally at distill underscore Vermont, which I often try to try to give a little more about behind the scenes at the distillery. Um, but Bar Hill Gin is our, our main Instagram account where you'll find all the information about Bees Knees Week, great cocktail recipes. Um, you can meet a lot of our bar team who are really the superstars um, making great cocktails here on Gin Lane and learn more about the, uh, the farming partners that we work with. This has been a pleasure. I <laughs> literally just walked in the door back in August knowing not very much at all and uh, left that evening very impressed. And uh, the bartender that evening, I told her a bit, you know, after a couple hours conversation, told her a bit about what I was up to. She was kind enough to give me your email address. And here we are. And uh, I'm really pleased to be back. And, um, as I said, I think it's an exceptional product and we are in the review business, you know, it's an exceptional product. And when you pair it with the clarity of the mission and the importance of the mission and just being around this place, as you've spoken about the team, the bartenders, there's a lot of top shelf people around here who really care. It's all really compelling. And so it's very fun to spend the day with you today and hear you talk through these things and get your perspective and um, appreciate you taking the time. And I look forward to my next visit <laughs> already. It's awesome. Thank you for having me. Really appreciate you visiting us here. Yeah, man. Thanks again. And uh, But now I am going to remember, I'm going to get some gin. I'm going to get some honey so that I don't get in trouble when I get back to Crested Butte. We, we might have to double that order. Okay. <laughs> Thanks again, man. Cool. Thank you. Well, that's it for this edition of Crafted. I want to thank Ryan for the great conversation and for all of his and the whole Bar Hill team's hospitality last week in Montpelier. Again, you can check out Bar Hill at caledoniaspirits.com. We'll include that link in the show notes of this episode or find them on Instagram at barhillgin. I also want to say thank you to the strikingly handsome Justin Bob for producing this episode, and thanks to you for listening. And if you are enjoying these crafted conversations, 
then we would very much appreciate it if you would leave us a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts. And that will just help us keep this whole show going and growing. Finally, from the entire team here at Blister, please take good care of yourself and everybody else. And we will talk to you again later this week over on our Bikes and Big Ideas podcast. And then on Friday over on our Gear 30 podcast. Catch you over there. Take care, everybody.